This is React Podcast. I'm Chantastic. Are you new to web development and looking for a positive, inclusive community to join? Are you building a community right now and want to learn how to support it and foster the creative spirit? Have we got a show for you? Today, we sit down with Saranyat Barak to talk podcasting, community building, and organizing the most positive conference on the planet. She is the incredible host of three amazing shows, Code Newbie, Base CS with Vaidehi Joshi, and Command Line Heroes. She's building community through her twice-weekly Code Newbie Twitter chats and the positive, inclusive, inspiring conference, Codeland. I wanted to have her on the show this week because tickets for Codeland just went on sale, and I think you should go. Codeland is packed with talks and workshops that show how code applies to art, music, health, and socioeconomic issues. It's July 22nd in New York City. Now, maybe you can't make it, that date doesn't work for you, but as you listen to this show, you're thinking, I really love this vision and I want to support it. You can do that through a pay it forward ticket. This is amazing. This allows someone to attend the conference who wouldn't be able to otherwise. Get your tickets at codelandconf.com. Through the course of this episode, I think that you will see why buying a ticket for someone to attend this conference is a great investment in the hands of Saran. And now, into the show. Saran, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It is a delight to have you on the show. Uh, I I was telling a friend, I was texting with a friend of mine earlier today, and I was like, you know, I'm kind of nervous for this interview. <laughs> I'm interviewing Saran, and she's like, she's amazing. There's like a kind of a layer of like tech podcasts, mm-hmm. and then yours are like the the, the the like 99% invisible like this <laughs> oh, american yeah. life like tech talk love podcast yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome thank you <laughs> so you're doing amazing work and i guess my first question is you know why did you land on podcasting what was it that attracted you to that medium sure so my first job out of college was actually working at npr national public radio and so i was an editorial assistant so i didn't do the production side of things but i did the booking and the pre-interviews and writing the scripts and like designing the episode basically and i've just always loved radio i've always loved that medium i felt like it was a powerful way to connect with people emotionally to feel closer to a story a problem um and so i've just always been in love with that medium and for code newbie we we started by doing Twitter chats. We did Twitter chats for about six, seven months maybe before we started doing the podcast. And the reason why we started the podcast is because Twitter is a great way to have many conversations at the same time. It's a great way to kind of hear different voices and perspectives. It is not a great way to have a long conversation. <laughs> um, you can try, but you'll probably be upset about it. Um, and so if you wanted to kind of dig deep into a particular person or topic, it just wasn't a good tool. And so when I thought about, well, of all the tools out there, what's a good one to just kind of sit on an idea and explore it, podcasting came to mind. That's awesome. Now, how did you find your first round of guests for podcasting? Well, the good thing is people love talking about themselves. So uh, <laughs> it was <laughs> it was pretty easy. People ask us all the time, like, how do you get guests? I'm like, I just ask them. And they usually say yes, because they just they like hearing about them, um, which is like totally natural, right? I, I love talking about myself, too. It's one of the reasons why I, I do podcasts. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I reached out to folks who I personally wanted to talk to, who I thought would be a good, uh, had a good story for our audience in particular, who'd be good for the community to hear from. Um, I started out with people that I already knew 
So either friends, acquaintances, people, um, you know, fellow speakers who, uh, you know, I, I knew from the speaker circuit, um, things like that. And then eventually I kind of branched out to people that I didn't know at all and just cold emailed folks. So starting a little bit close and then kind of reaching out. Now, you had transitioned into uh, programming. You went to a uh, boot camp. Did you have a career that you were into before that, or was this your, your, your first career? I was in tech before I got into coding. Okay. Um, so I worked at a couple of startups. I did a lot of the marketing, sales, some business development, things that weren't like product. I basically did everything that wasn't product. And I kept hitting this wall where I kept thinking, man, if I don't learn how to code, and if I don't get on the engineering side of things, like I'm going to be left behind. You know, when I looked at the people who um, were valued at the company, the people whose, frankly, jobs were not in danger, um, it was always the developers, right? The engineers are definitely the rock stars, the people who were protected on the team, the people who were taken the most seriously, you know, on the team. And I really wanted that. I wanted to build a career in the tech world. And it became pretty clear that the best way or one of the best ways to do that um, was to become technical myself. Now, you kind of went right from right from that experience. And you went to you said NPR, right? Uh, NPR was my first job out of school. Yeah. Okay, cool. Now, how long were you working at NPR or doing a developer gig before um, really kind of diving into the the career trajectory that you're on now? Yeah, so I would say it was a total of three three years pre-coding. Okay. So I was uh, doing journalism. So I worked at NPR. I worked at Discover Magazine. That was about like a year's worth of like journalism stuff. And then um, I read the Steve Jobs book, which got me really excited about technology. And that's what really kind of um, you know, drew my attention to that world. Before that, I never would have thought that I would be interested in anything tech related. And um, and then from that book, I said, man, I really need to get in on this. And I cold emailed a bunch of different startup CEOs. And one of those emails turned into a coffee. One of the coffees turned into an internship and the internship turned into a job. And then from there, I spent about another two years working in the startup world. And that's when I kept hitting that wall. And I went, okay, now I need to learn how to code. So about three years out of school where I made that transition. Now, I know that one of the like kind of key predictors of success uh, that we've seen in a lot of people that that we interview on this show is that ability to just kind of like learn in the open mm-hmm. to just start having that conversation start talking about the things that you're learning kind of write or you know podcast or like whatever to the person that you needed yesterday mm-hmm. um, was that a you know a natural thing for you out of school or is that something that you you learned uh, in boot camp um how do you how do you learn that skill and take advantage of it yeah, that's a great question. I think that in school, it was in the boot camp that I went to, um, it was super collaborative. It was super collaborative. It was very much a we're in this together. You know, don't leave anyone behind. Let's all kind of move forward um, on the same, you know, at the same beat, same rhythm. And so I think that the school really set up expectations for me as a developer to think, okay, learning is natural, learning is normal, and we should all be helping each other. But I think the real driver for me was just that I was so excited. I was just so excited about everything I was learning that I just wanted to tell people what I was learning, you know? Um, And when you're really excited about learning a new thing, it may not feel obvious to you that like everyone else knows that thing. Do you know what I mean? Like, you you know, the CSS turn, the background turned yellow in CSS. Like that's exciting for me as, you know, being a very new uh, CSS person, but like, that's pretty basic. You know what I mean? Like no one else is going to be excited. About it. But <laughs> I didn't know, right? Like I was so excited about my own accomplishments that I didn't realize that my accomplishments were pretty beginner. So that ignorance kind of allowed me to be openly excited and to share all the things I was learning without really second guessing myself or second guessing my enthusiasm. 
Did you have people in your classes that were, were, I guess, less open about their enthusiasm of these things, at least in, in a public way? And did uh, did that community help kind of bring them up in it? Or was there kind of a dividing line between people who loved sharing what they were learning and people who kind of like kind of cloistered themselves away and, and learn in private? I don't think there was so much that divide. I think the divide was more of why were you learning how to code at all? So for me, it was for my career, but it was also because I genuinely loved it and I thought it was so much fun and it was so interesting and it was just a fascinating journey that I wanted to be on. Mm -hmm. But for other people, it was just a job. Like it was very, and that's that's fine, by the way. Like it doesn't have to be a passion. It could totally be just, you know, just for a job. Uh, but it was different, right? Like learning with someone who's kind of like, all right, I just need to get through this lab is very different from someone who's like, ooh, can we do this lab differently the second time around? You know what I mean? Like, it's just a different environment. So I de And there are also people, um, frankly, who had other obligations. I was lucky that um, at that point, like I was living with my, uh, my now husband, then boyfriend. I didn't have any kids, any dependents. I didn't have any, you know, student loans. Like, I didn't have any, like, life obligations that would have drew yeah. my attention away from school. So I had the privilege of really immersing myself and really just, like, relishing in every single part of it, whereas a lot of people had, like, kids and and mortgages and had, you know what I mean? Like had like real world things that, you know, rightly so, like they, they weren't as fully enthused about it because they had other things to worry about. You know what I mean? So yep, yep. it definitely felt different learning uh, based on your reasons, you know, your reason for learning to code and also just your life circumstance. Yeah. So I want to talk about your, your your Twitter chats in a second, but I want to dive a little bit more into into podcasting. Sure. You said that you um, had uh, this experience at, at NPR and it seems like that really kind of invested a lot into your your style. I want to talk about your style because you have an sure. incredibly narrative style in your podcast, whether it be with the uh, individual episodes or kind of like the arc of, of a season altogether. Even the fact that you have seasons and not just like a ongoing thing. What are what are some of the things that you learned from NPR about storytelling that really play into your podcast now? Oh, that's a good one. I feel like there's so many things. Number one is that um, people can be very long-winded. And so um, <laughs> and so a lot of interviewing I learned from Michelle Martin, who's an amazing interviewer, amazing journalist. Um, and the types of questions – so you would think that as an interviewer you want to ask open-ended questions, right? If you think about like writing an essay or something, you want to say like, you know, what are – tell me about the theory of blah, blah, blah. And how do you think about – and you want to ask these very open questions that would allow for people to like explore and be creative. I found that in interviewing you don't want to do that. You kind of want to ask very specific questions. Um, in fact, closed questions are oftentimes better. Just saying to people, what do you like more, JavaScript or Python? <laughs> and letting them, you know, just and, – and knowing and trusting that they're not going to just pick an answer. They're going to pick an answer and then back it up, right? Um, so there's just like so much about interviewing and, and asking questions that um, I had to learn from, and, and I very excitedly learned from my time at NPR. Um, a lot of it, though, was trial and error. A lot of it was listening back to my interviews and going, ah, it took too long for me to get this one answer I was looking for, you know, or took too many attempts for me to pull the story that I wanted to get from it. Um, and there are times when, like for me as an interviewer, it's really hard for me to interrupt people. I have a very hard time because I feel like a jerk, you know, I feel very rude interrupting <laughs> people. But sometimes you got to interrupt people, you know, when they go on yep. forever, you got to stop them. Um, and so that's a skill I've just recently kind of gotten a hold on, um, a hold of. So uh, yeah, I think just figuring out what is the right way of asking questions to get the type of conversation you want is a skill that I started learning at NPR and I'm still figuring out now. 
that is something that I, that that I've been learning to like, specifically that kind of giving like a or question or like a closed ended question. Yes, or questions are the best. Yeah. Oh my gosh! And then you know if it, you know like well actually it's neither of those it's this. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it, you know it's like that option is always open and I always w- want to leave it open. Yes. Um, but like kind of closing it off really does frame things mm-hmm. uh, quite a bit better. That's incredible advice. Um, now you have an amazing presence on your podcast. No, oh, thank you. Uh, do you have a, a background in, in drama or do, you have <laughs> a, or do you just have, is it just in you? Is it just come out of you? So I think it comes from, um, I've read or listened to a ton of audiobooks. Like that was my thing growing up is I would spend so many weekends listening to audiobooks and like drawing. That was my thing. I'd listen to audiobooks and draw. And so I think that any type of charisma I might have on the mic probably comes from just listening to a lot of audio. Interesting. And growing up listening to a lot of NPR and kind of figuring out how it should sound. Um, I think it also helps that I like listen to myself and go like, mm, I don't like how I sounded there. Like that sounded <laughs> kind of cheesy or that sounded forced um, and trying to mimic that. Um, I also love listening to um, other podcasters and figuring out what I like about what they do and what I don't like about what they do. Like um, one of my favorite examples is um, he's never going to hopefully he won't ever listen to to this when I say this, (laughs) but like Alec Baldwin (laughs) um, has this podcast um, called uh, Here's the Thing, I think it is. And I only listened to one interview, but he interviewed um, Howard Schultz, the the creator of uh, Starbucks, CEO of Starbucks. Um, not the creator, sorry, just the CEO of Starbucks. And he, uh, I hated the way he asked questions. It was the worst. Because he asked them, it sounded like an interrogation. He would go, what's your favorite you know, type of coffee? Why? When did you try it? When was the last time you tried it? How? You know, and I'm just like, whoa, calm down, Alec. You know what I mean? Like, it was just, so, but it, it taught me like, okay, I don't want to do that. These are the things that I don't like to do. Um, I've been listening to Kara Swisher a lot recently with the, uh, what is it called? Recode Decode podcast that she does mm-hmm. where she interviews folks and her style is very different from mine. And I kind of want to emulate hers a little bit where she, her questions are very like punchy to the point. She does not care about interrupting people. She will happily interrupt you. She will talk over you. <laughs> But it doesn't sound rude the way that she does it. It sounds yeah. like a, all right, you have something to say. Let's get to the point. You know, it almost feels like she's advocating for the listener the way that she does it. Um, and I would love to interrupt people that way because that's like such a cool thing to do. So, um, yeah, listening to other podcasters and like taking notes of things I hate or things I really like and trying to um, incorporate those into what I do. This is something that I found very valuable about your shows actually is that advocating for the listener, realizing that you are the voice of the listener, yes. that you need to ask the question of the listener. Yes. What's a what's a good technique for you know for people who are interested in getting into podcasting? Like, what's a good technique for playing that role, playing the kind of like the head of the listener? I think it's very hard to be your listener if you don't spend time with your listener. Mm-hmm. So for me, um, the kind of natural built-in way I spend regular quality time with the community is that I do the Twitter chats, right? We do two, two Twitter chats a week. We do the Wednesday Twitter chats at 6 p.m. Pacific, 9 p.m. Eastern time. And then we have the Sunday coding check-ins at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern time. And that's my like regular built-in scheduled opportunity to uh, talk to people, hang out with them, hear their stories, get to know them a little bit better, figure out what they care about, what they're up to, what they're struggling with. And so the more time I get to spend directly engaging with the community, the better I can put on my like code newbie hat. And you know what I mean? And like pull that because that's the thing that, um, you know, is is tough about managing 
a community is, the more experience you have managing the community, the easier it is to get away from that community, right? Like when yeah. I was uh, like five, six years ago when I first started Code Newbie, I was a Code Newbie. Now I'm kind of not, you know, like I've, <laughs> I've, I've gotten better at coding. And frankly, a lot of what I do isn't even technical work anymore. A lot of what I do with podcasting and writing is more like communication stuff. So, right. you know, me personally, like I don't live the life of a Code Newbie myself. And so, you know, the further away I get from that, um, you know, that that opportunity to live it through myself, I have to live through my community. And you can't do that unless you spend time with your community. So I think that's the, the biggest thing is to spend time with the people that you're trying to serve. I really like this idea of kind of aggregating all of the requests of your community, learning from them, and then being able to kind of, you know, you have an expert and ask the honest question, like, what does X mean? Mm -hmm. You know, maybe you know the answer, but like, yeah. you know, it, it's internalized through like your conversations yes. with other people. And yeah. that's, that's, a, a truly beautiful thing. Yeah, and I think it also helps. So we hired a producer, and um, he does not come from the world of code at all. And it's been really helpful because, you know, whenever I do an interview, I have to constantly go, wait, would they know that word? No, they wouldn't. Let me ask what that word is. You know what I mean? Um, and having him producing the show is a nice little, uh, you know, reality check of, okay, would Levi know this word? No, because he doesn't, you know, he's new to coding. Okay, if Levi doesn't know it, um, then I may need to make sure, you know, so it kind of reinforces, like I have someone on the team who's literally a code newbie, like very much so right now. <laughs> A code newbie and that's really helpful in making sure I don't um, you know I don't assume things about our audience I love that now through the course of your podcasting you've you started in 2014 that uh, right? yeah that sounds about right okay few, if, several years now yeah <laughs> you have had the opportunity to uh, to talk with a lot of you know legends heroes like big influencers in in code was that uh, natural for you was that intimidating uh, at the beginning and uh, yeah, I guess that, I guess that's a question. Was that intimidating? What have you learned oh, yeah. about talking with people who have a huge influence? Yeah, for me, there are people I've talked to who um, I don't want to waste their time. That's really my yeah. biggest thing. You know, like I'm very intimidated because I want them to feel intellectually stimulated. I want them to feel challenged and I want them to feel like this was worth their time. So for those people, I'm definitely very nervous. Uh, first of all, I'm nervous for most of my interviews. Like there are very few interviews <laughs> where I'm like, oh, I got this. You know, every interview I'm like, all right, I hope I don't mess this one up. Um, but for the bigger ones, my biggest concern is like making sure it's worth their while because I know that it means, you know, I think anyone giving you time is a big deal. But I think when there's someone who's really busy or have a lot of obligations or have a lot of places, frankly, that they could be, yes. um, you know, taking up that time feels particularly precious to me. Um, and so, yeah, I think I'm, I'm always nervous about those. I try and do my best to, you know, overprepare as much as possible to mm -hmm. um, make sure I have a really, really tight, um, you know, script, a tight kind of outline of things I want to go to. I try and make sure I research them very thoroughly to make sure I don't miss obvious things or ask kind of like silly questions, uh, you know. So, uh, yeah, those those are definitely nerve wracking and it does not get easier. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> How do you resolve that that tension of having an audience that is really at the beginning of their coding journey and then having a guest that's, you know, like way far along and not feeling, uh, I, I guess, like intimidated or uh, I guess scared of, you know, not looking uh, like a uh, like a neophyte or like yeah. asking questions that might feel kind of like offensive, like, oh, hey, I have you on the line uh, and I'm asking you this question that you could have just easily answered over Twitter. Yeah. Uh, like, <laughs> how, do, how does that feel and how have you resolved that over the years? Yeah. 
So the first is setting the tone and setting expectations. So when I first reach out to folks, I'll say to them, I do a podcast that is specifically for new developers, people who are just getting into code. Um, This is geared towards a beginner audience. So kind of setting expectations that I'm going to ask you to define some pretty basic terminology and I'm going to ask you to explain concepts that might feel totally normal and totally, um, you know, like too easy for you. But for our audience is a big deal and it's brand new. So I think setting that tone, setting expectations are really, uh, is really important. But I think the other part is focusing more on the stories. Um, It's much more interesting to hear, you know, how did you get into code and what was your first language? And, you know, like people don't really get tired of telling those stories. That's much more interesting than saying like, explain what code is, right? Like, (laughs) even if you could explain what code is, like that just doesn't make good podcasting. So when you focus on people, people's um, stories, then it's not really about, there's nothing basic about someone's story, right? It's like, it's their story. That's what they want to share. And they're really excited to talk about it. Now, you gave an awesome talk um, at, I think it was a Red Hat conference, Mm -hmm. and you talked about these code and moments. Yeah. And I, I think that that's something that that kind of ties into what you're talking about now is, is that there's, there's oftentimes a story underneath what happened, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a story underneath the success. And that's, you know, that's always really interesting. Could you explain to me um, this this philosophy of, of code and that you have? Yeah, sure. So the idea with the code and is that you don't really code for code's sake. And specifically with that, uh, with that talk that I did, there's this idea that coding is this black and white, you know, no emotions. It's really cold, uh, not cold in a bad way, but just like, you know, just like purely logical way of thinking and of doing things that, uh, you know, isn't emotional and is, you know, is, is very logical. And um, I just don't agree with that. I think that a lot of the the biggest moments in code, whether it's, um, you know, Linus Torvald being like upset and frustrated about his operating <laughs> system options and deciding to create Linux, you know, like whatever those moments are, they're based on. Um, on like frustration, on excitement, on on some type of an emotion. And so code isn't just about code, it's code and feelings, it's code and frustration, it's code and anger. And like to not try and shy away from those feelings, I think, one, that's what makes us human, but also I think that's what makes us really powerful technologists. Yeah. So let's talk about these, uh, these Twitter chats. What gave you the idea for starting a, a Twitter chat? Twitter is kind of not a great medium for having uh, conversations no, it's because it's it's kind of unbounded yes. anyone can jump in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um so what inspired you to start there? I was copying everyone else. <laughs> That's the truth. Everyone else was doing it. There were so many Twitter chats. I think nowadays there's still a couple, but not as many as there were back then. Uh, this is about five, six years ago. And uh, back then, uh, everyone was doing them. And so it felt like a really yeah. easy way to get a lot of people involved. It felt like an easy way to kind of start something to bring people together and to create a supportive community. And I saw that other people were successful doing it. So I thought I would do it too. Nice, nice. Now, you you talk about signaling and you say that you wanted to create a, a community that was disgustingly, aggressively and sickeningly <laughs> nice. Yes. <laughs> and um, now, obviously, that 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 does some signaling for uh, for, for people who, who need that. Um, but what does it do in, in terms of the, I guess, like maintaining the the air of the conversation or the space around the conversation and um, kind of protecting that conversation in an unbounded space like Twitter. Yeah, I think it gives us like almost like a nice buffer. 
You know, like there's like there's this buffer around the community that says like, hey, this is a place for you to be nice. This is a place for you to be to for you to be safe, for you to feel like you can be yourself. You can bring your whole self to the conversation. And it kind of creates this this um, this nice layer that uh, that other people can see and either decide, hey, I want to participate in this or this isn't quite for me. And because there is that nice, thick, like protective layer almost around the community, it reinforces that feeling of safety for people who are in it. So if we are kind of laying on all this positivity and all this, um, you know, all this uh, validation and all of this uh, congratulatory language and celebrating you in all ways, it gives you the ability to kind of like take your coat off and just feel a little bit more relaxed and like (laughs) take a seat and spend time with us um, and allows people who are watching to go, ooh, maybe I want to go in there and take off my jacket too and kind of like chill. Um, So yeah, that's what it does for us. It sets the tone and it helps us create like a shield for the people who are in our community. I have to say, I, I was introduced to, uh, to code newbie through this hashtag. And, you know, I I was, I was on a couple of these and they're like, Oh yeah, I listened to this episode or, you know, went through this, like, you know, react resource. And I was like, Oh, what is this? (laughs) uh, It really is kind of amazingly positive. Um, Have you found that, you know, having that air has kind of naturally uh, kind of like kicked out certain like certain attitudes um, or has has that kind of persisted? And how do you manage that? I think it has kicked people out because we just haven't had to deal with a lot of bullcrap. Like we just haven't had to do it. You know, <laughs> like I think we've dealt with over the past five, six years, maybe like three times, you know, at least that I was made aware of um, where something, you know, unsavory happened and we had to deal with it. But overall, um it just hasn't really been an issue. And the only explanation I can come up with is we're so over the top and like so aggressively nice with everything that we do that um, there's almost like no opportunity for you to be a jerk because we'll probably just shower you with love anyway. <laughs> you know, like there's just there's no space for it. And I think we turn people off. Um, so that's my explanation for it. But overall, we haven't really had to deal with much. We've been very lucky. That's awesome. What are you looking forward to in these uh, Twitter conversations kind of coming up in the future? I'm looking forward to just hearing more about people's stories. Like the Twitter chats are really an excuse to talk to people and an excuse to connect with people. It's not really about the answers to the questions. Um, those are great. Those make for fun conversations, but that's not really the point, right? The point is for someone to say, hey, you know, here's my my dream tech job and someone to go, hey, I have a job for you. And that's happened before. Like, <laughs> hey, I have a job opening that like maybe you should apply to. And it's those connections that really make the difference. So um, what I get excited about every Wednesday is seeing those opportunities and seeing those connections happen and making sure people feel um, feel like there's an opportunity to grow and to help each other grow. As it's grown, have you still been able to participate as much as you'd like or have you had to depend more on the community? I think a little bit of both. I think that, you know, there definitely came a point with the Twitter chats where I no longer felt obligated to respond to every person's tweet because I knew the community would do it for me. You know, like I would I would reach to respond to something and then I go, oh, you've already gotten like five congratulations on this. All right. You're taken <laughs> care of, you know, um, so there have been a lot of moments. And that's the thing, too. Um, people would ask or people still ask us specific technical questions they'll say you know like i'm stuck on this problem how do i solve it and we don't answer those questions we just retweet them and then the community jumps in and says okay here are like three things you can try and have you done this have you done that so when it comes to troubleshooting problem solving um asking any kind of general questions we we rely on the community we share that with the community when you ask them to jump in and they they always do 
That's interesting. I've, I've actually been doing a lot of research on uh, community recently, and I've been watching a bunch of talks because this is something that I am I am bad at. I'm, <laughs> I'm very much a private person, mm-hmm. and I, I, I kind of like like to just like be in my head, figure something out, and then like emerge w- with an answer. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is like this is totally new territory for me. And one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show, something that you've you've modeled, and I've been able to see is. Derek Sivers, who created uh, CD Baby, mm-hmm. has this uh, really cool TED Talk, um, and he talks about this idea of, you know, everyone wants to be a leader, um, but what we overestimate is the first follower. That like this oh, is the you know the first follower is is the beginning of a movement, mm. and if that leader can conduct or uh, can communicate properly. Uh, their ideas and guiding principles and the why to this, you know, this first follower mm-hmm. that then that that builds the community mm. like that that person kind of like grows and like in doubles and you have this whole like, you know, what, doubling effect. Have you found this to be true? I mean, do you think that it could be the same if you were the only person with this vision and you didn't release that to other people in the community and give them that trust to play that role? I think that everything we do is inherently giving trust, mm-hmm. you know, by virtue of saying like, hey, we're going to do a Twitter chat. It's going to be open. Anyone can join in. We have, um, you know, we've we've said to the world like, hey, we trust you to behave yourselves. <laughs> you know, like we don't have a private community. We don't like charge for membership or any of that stuff. And by doing that, um, by just the very structure of what we're doing and where we're doing it, we're saying to people, we trust you to, um, to kind of bring your best foot forward. And yeah. by us exemplifying that behavior and us being very proactive in showcasing what good behavior looks like, we're modeling that behavior and allowing people to um, to mimic that and to, to replicate that. So I think just, you know, just by who we are and how we decide to operate things, um, we've inherently given that trust and people have luckily, uh, you know, done done very well by that. I want to talk a little bit about Codeland. Sure. This is your this is your, your your conference. How many years have you been doing it now? Just two years. This will be the third year. Just two years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing! Like it, it feels like a much, uh, much, much longer run than that. Yes, this yes, is it does. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to jump into the nitty gritty and and all of this. Uh, first of all, for anyone, regardless if you're going to Codeland, talking at Codeland, or, or whatever, you have an amazing, amazing talk with not nearly enough views on it uh, called "Your Perfect Tech Talk." Oh yeah, uh, I love that talk. <laughs> that talk was fun. It is. <laughs> So unbelievably good, um, but you you ha- you break it down into this 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 one core concept that is um, no one will remember what you said, they'll remember how you made them feel. Yes. So my question is to uh, to you is how do you want people to feel? attending Codeland? Yeah. Oh, I love that question. So I didn't come up with that uh, that quote. Someone else did. I don't remember who it was, but it's one of my favorite, favorite things. Um, so for me, when people leave Codeland, I want them to feel three things. I want them to feel inspired. I want them to leave thinking like, oh my God, that person did this amazing thing. I can do it too. I want them to feel um, educated. I want them to feel like they've grown a little bit. They've learned something they didn't know before. And I want them to feel activated. So I think a lot of times you go to a conference, we're filled with all this positivity, all this energy and then we kind of go home and there's like the post-conference slump you know where you're kind of like back to your usual grind and like all those feelings are kind of like gone and you kind of wish you were back at the conference um i don't want you to feel that way i want you to go home and think i can't wait to go do something about what i Mm. learned about what i took in at this conference so and that's what i tell all the speakers i work personally with each speaker i do personal coaching and that's how we start off all of our conversations is your job is to make people feel inspired to make them feel Mm. a little bit smarter and to make sure they feel activated once they leave 
Now that's a lot of work. What does that coaching mm-hmm. look like as you're preparing all your speakers for Codeland? Sure. So there are three parts to the coaching. The first is the outline. So our speaker lineup is a mix of CFP and then a mix of invited speakers. So it's about half and half. Hmm. And so um, my job is to, for the people who've submitted through the CFP, we'll review their outlines that they propose, kind of make sure that's in good shape, make sure we're all on the same page in the, you know, the shape and trajectory. For the invited speakers, I ask them to write an outline and then we'll review that together. And then after we're kind of good on the skeleton, on the bones of the top, talk, then we'll move on to slide creation. Um, I think slides are super important. I think slides are like very poorly done, just generally speaking. Um, And so usually, especially for, you know, people who are not seasoned speakers. And for us, we have a lot of first time speakers. There's just too much text, you know, on the slide. The slides aren't well organized, you know, just very like understandable, you know, mistakes. Um, And so I ask people to do like a first draft of their slides and then we'll meet and then we'll review them together. I'll give them some pointers, some feedback on like each and every slide and make sure that's in good shape. And then the final stage is the rehearsal. So I ask them to prepare and get everything ready. And then we'll do like a, you know, all the talks are about 15 minutes. So they're like relatively short talks. Oh, wow. Um, I think most things should be 15 minutes long. And yeah. so um, we'll do the rehearsal and then I'll give them notes and feedback on that. So it's like a three-stage process. Um, and my goal by the end of it, you know, it's even with the amount of time we put into it, like it's still giving a talk is very much based on um, or how good the talk is, is mostly based on how good of a performer you are. That's one thing that I've learned is like more than anything, talks are at least good talks are not lectures. They're not like, you know, they're not speeches, they're performances. And it is very hard, no matter how much time I spend with people, it's really hard to teach people how to be a good performer. That takes years of practice, you know? And so my goal is to make sure the content is very solid and that the Mm -hmm. speaker feels confident and comfortable giving the talk and kind of like hoping the performance part is like mostly there. So yeah, that's how I approach uh, coaching. Have you have you seen any like big breakthroughs? Do you have repeat speakers? I think the only there are two repeat speakers we have this year. Katrina Owen is coming back again. Okay. Um, and Scott Hanselman's giving the keynote again. Awesome, awesome. awesome. Everyone else, I believe, is new. Yeah. <laughs> um, what has feedback been like for the that that style that fifteen minutes? Uh, I'm assuming single track. Uh, so this year we're actually doing two tracks. So this year we oh, have wow. track A, track B. So track A is you'll go to talks in the morning and then you'll pick a workshop in the afternoon. And then track B is you pick a workshop in the morning and then talks in the afternoon. Wow, wow, wow! Is that is that like the right amount of information for people, yes. or is like jumping from topic to topic? kind of like overwhelming? Uh, so we try and do a mix of really technical talks. So things that are like, let me show you code. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we do talks that are a little bit more high level, like how to write a good blog post. Uh, and then we do talks that are more emotional. So here's how, uh, you know, I manage my tr- depression while learning how to code. Oh, wow. So um, I think between them, so when I put together the program, I try and like mix those three together and kind of have them be evenly distributed. And I think that gives people, um, you know, enough change that it's interesting, but the different types of talks, different types of content require, I think, different things from your brain, you know, they kind of like stimulate different parts of your brain. So mm-hmm. I'm hoping with that combination and the fact they're only 15 minutes long, I'm hoping that'll keep people energized and stimulated without like overwhelming them. Nice. Now, this has been a, a conference uh, that has been adapting year over year. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was the what was your thought process when you decided to do the first one? 
Yeah, so I had a really great conversation with um, a guy named Dwayne O'Brien. He's amazing. He's pretty big in open source. And when I was telling him about Coland, he said to me, you need to figure out what your journey is going to be. Like, what is your Mm. uh, attendee journey is what he called it. Like, what does that look like? What does that experience look like? And I really took that to heart and I mapped out, you know, if I'm an attendee, just like you would do like a user journey, Mm -hmm. what is the user journey of an attendee? So I'm a user, right? I'm an attendee. I walk through the doors. What's the first thing? I see. I see a sign. It says Codeland with, ho- you know, hopefully like an arrow saying like, go this way. So I'm not lost. Right. <laughs> yeah. And then I go that way. And then what do I see? Do I see one table, two tables? Is there a line? Are there multiple lines? Yeah. Or do I see any personnel yet? Are there any volunteers ready to greet me? Um, what is my, what's the process of getting my badge look like? Do I get my badge in a swag bag? Do I get just the swag bag? Do I get just the badge? There are all these like little things, you know, that when you're mapping out and creating the user story of an attendee that um, you got to think about. And it's really hard yeah. to kind of see those things until you put it to paper. So I wrote out like, you know, like a story, a flow for uh, every single part of like every touch point that the user would would come across from the moment they walk into the building to the moment they leave. And then at each touch point, I would say, okay, in order to make the, you know, the badge registration process, phenomenal. Here are the things that we need to make it happen. In order to make the getting food experience phenomenal, here are the things that need to happen. And so, mm-hmm. um, yeah, just really, really being very specific and very intentional about designing that experience and designing for that experience is one of the things I spent a lot of time thinking about that first year. Was there one thing that you you hyper-focused on and didn't end up mattering <laughs> in the end? Ooh, <laughs> that's a good question question okay so one thing that i think was totally like not really important and not necessary is so i was told by conference organizers to make sure everyone stays hydrated just like make sure everyone has plenty of water it's super important you get tired you get like low energy at a conference it can be overwhelming so make sure everyone's hydrated so i bought i think the first year i bought like two thousand bottles of water wow which is like a lot of water. A lot um, of water. I think it was 2000, maybe it was 1000, <laughs> but it was just a lot of water either way. Um, and I thought like these water bottles are going to be like amazing. You know, like I, like, I was like, this is going to, people are going to be so grateful for these water bottles. Uh, and then I got an, a note from, I don't, I don't know if it was the first year. Or the, I think it was the second year. I got a note from someone who's like, hey, did you think about like water coolers, which would be way more, you know, friendly to the environment. And also yeah. um, like like no one needs that many water bottles, you know, and I thought to myself, <laughs> oh, and it made me think of um, conferences I've been to. And I was like, oh, yeah, no one else does this. Like no one has water bottles. They just have a lot of water coolers. So that was something that I thought was going to be like a big, not a game changer, but I thought would be like really meaningful. And everyone was like, no, stop, stop killing the ocean, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> now you've been pouring your heart and soul into this conference. What does it feel like to get that feedback? How do you interpret it? Yeah. So I think any type of constructive criticism is always going to be met first with anger. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that no matter what they say, no matter how kindly you put it, I think the natural reaction is always, oh, really? Do you know how hard this was? You know what I mean? (laughs) Like that's just always natural reaction. Um, But then, you know, hopefully you'll come back from that and you'll go, okay, now that I've gotten my anger out of the way, um, now let's look at this and see if there's any truth to what they're saying. And then you evaluate it. And then you kind of have to have a very honest conversation with yourself that goes, okay, but are they right? And if they are, Mm -hmm. what are we going to do to change it in the future? So um, I like to think I'm very good at constructive feedback and I take it to heart, but it definitely doesn't mean that like my ego isn't hurt a little bit. You know, like every, every piece of feedback always comes with like 
a little bit of a, of a slap to the ego, yeah. um, but you got to bounce back. And if you want to do a good job and if you want to improve, you have to take that and you have to, you know, make it better and, and act on it anyway. What's something that you didn't know last year that you're excited to implement this year? Childcare. I'm so excited to implement oh. childcare. Yeah, that was something that the first year was brought to my attention like two weeks before the conference and it was just like too late to do anything about it. Yeah. Um, and then the second year we tried to do on-site childcare, but because of uh, building restrictions, we just like legally were not allowed to. Yeah. And so we had a childcare fund that allowed us to reimburse people for childcare. Um, so we tried to like find a way, you know, like around that. Oh, wow. uh, but this year, because we're in a new venue, we're able to actually provide on-site childcare. So I'm super excited to finally reach that goal. Awesome. Awesome. Now, what does it look like uh, to to do that? Because I mean, so many conferences is kind of like you know, you come, we give you the knowledge, and then you leave. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. Accurate. Yeah. How does that change the the dynamics of a conference when you know you actually come with your kid? Um, you know, are there additional concessions that you need to make, like you know, additional meals, etc.? Or um, you know, how do you think through that? Yeah. Well, on the logistics side, there are thankfully professionals who think about that for me. So um, you know, you hire a professional. A caregiver, a professional um, child caregiver, and they have all the certifications. They know what to do when it comes to events and conferences. Usually, they'll also do like weddings and office events too. So they're very well versed. They know, you know, they bring their own toys, their own books, their own uh, material. You tell them how old the kids are, just in case there's like a baby or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, they bring the necessary amount of uh, staff. So I think, if I remember correctly, I think it's like a one to three relationship or something. Okay, um, where it's like one caregiver for every three. Kids, something like that. Um, and so like you do, you tell them how many kids you have, they figure out what their staff is going to be. And then the biggest thing is that you provide a room, like you provide a space where they can actually do the the childcare. Um, and usually there are some requests, like the room has to, you know, have, have a closed door or have like a nursing area, you know, like depending on the sitter, depending on the kids, there are certain requirements. But besides that, it's it's a lot more straightforward, frankly, than I thought it was going nice. to be. I thought it was going to be this huge, uh, you know, pain to do but it's actually like you know it's, it's a solved problem you know it's something that um luckily a lot of other people have already thought about and so it makes it a lot easier for us to do in terms of how it affects the experience that's something i'm actually really interested to find out you know because as a parent um, well i'm not a parent but i can imagine kind of trying to go to this conference and um, wanting to pay attention but kind of i don't know wanting to have access to your kids as well like i don't know how yeah. how people will feel about that um so we do we are going to be able to like let you know parents you know check in on their kids whenever they want and we'll bring lunch and catering to the kids sometimes i've heard that parents want to um bring the kid with them to lunch so like that'll be okay. an option as well um but yeah but i'm curious to see how that plays out and how parents and that's something we'll be looking forward to in the feedback is um you know seeing how parents interact and how they feel about bringing their kids to the conference yeah yeah have you have you already heard of people who are able to attend this year that weren't able to attend in the past? I've heard of people being really excited about the option. Oh, good. I, I don't think, I, if I remember correctly, I don't remember hearing specifically about people who said, now I can go versus I can't. I've heard of people saying, great, now I don't have to worry about childcare. Um, and I've heard people say, um, you know, it's really great that you're, you're able to do this and more conferences should do this. Um, so hopefully, and we've definitely had people take us up on it. So when you register for a ticket, you can say like, I need childcare. Here are the ages of my kids. So we're able to see that people are planning on taking advantage of it. Nice. Now the ticket, it's are insanely cheap for this conference. Uh, it, it's kind of hard to believe. How do you make that happen? 
Um, they do not cover the cost of the conference. <laughs> is the, is the, <laughs> they couldn't. They couldn't. Uh, the conferences are super expensive. They're super, super expensive. Yes. And for us, the, they are more expensive, or our conference is more expensive this year because the first two years, we were hosted by Microsoft. So we had a free venue. So we didn't have, you know, the biggest expense oh, wow. of a conference is, you know, usually the venue. It's usually venue, then food. And so for mm-hmm. us, our venue costs were like zero. So we're able to, you know, provide affordable tickets and, you know, still be sustainable um, without charging like a ton of money, which is really great. And then this year, now that we've kind of graduated and we're on to a different venue that costs a lot of money, um, <laughs> we kind of had to make the decision of, okay, do we pass on those costs to the attendees? You know, what is the most that they can realistically afford? Like what feels like a good price point? Um, and so we tried to keep it as cheap and affordable as we can without like hurting ourselves, you know? Um, so this year we're relying more than usual or more than the past two years on sponsorships. So sponsorships are really going to be the ones to, um, you know, cover that for us and to be able to help us make it sustainable because the conference prices, the, the ticket prices do not <laughs> do <laughs> barely cover like any part of the, the conference costs for sure. So really grateful to our sponsors for helping us with that. Awesome. Now I'm going to ask you a question. It's it's pretty nitty gritty, but uh, and you can choose to answer it or not. Okay. But you know, in terms of the the tickets, I think that you're saying it's like uh, I looked on. It's like between 99 and 169, depending yes. on which which options you get. Yeah. Um, how many more times than that ticket price is it to actually have that attendee at the conference? That's a good question. So I think the cost, if I remember this correctly, I think the cost per attendee is closer to. I want to say like 220, like I think it's like 220, okay. 230, um, which wow. I've heard from other conference organizers is still like a pretty cheap conference cost. Like we're, we're very yeah, good yeah. at being very frugal and being very intentional with our dollars. Um, but like the true cost per person, I think is around like 220. Okay. If I remember that math correctly. Yeah. Wow. And how long, how long are you planning this event? Does it start like right after the previous one or do you have a little bit of a break? Not quite. Yeah. I think for us, we started, uh, I want to say end of last year. So maybe like okay. October, November is when we first reached out to the, the venue. So the main thing is the venue. Um, so you got to book the venue as soon as you can, as soon as you have like dates available. So we started by booking the venue and then we started like really getting into planning probably December. And our conference is July 22nd. So like seven, eight months, I think that is. Awesome. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I have two questions. I want to, I want to be careful of your time, Um, but two questions. So the first one is for uh, people considering going to Codeland. Mm -hmm. Uh, What would you tell someone who's a little bit on the fence, you know, has some concerns, you know, what do you want them to think about when they're considering going to Codeland this year? Sure. So I want them to consider the fact that you will not find a more supportive conference ever. Like you just won't. Like one of the the biggest piece of feedback, and we had a ton of people, especially that first year, write blog posts and write tweets kind of praising the conference. And the biggest thing that they said was it is just such a friendly group of people. Like it's so it's just so kind. Um, And we're really thoughtful about every part of the conference experience and making sure you feel supported. One of the things that I'm probably most proud of with the conference is the booklet that we do. We produce this little booklet. Um, well, it's not really that little. It's like 100 pages. Um, but Whoa. the the booklet is it's not your average conference program. It's a, it's a full book where you get with each talk that you see, you get an accompanying cheat sheet. Wow. And the cheat sheet is a list of terms and definitions based on like what the talk is and a list of resources. So if you want to learn more about that topic, if you want to do some more research on your own, you have a place to start. And so that's our way of saying like literally at every 
step of the way, every talk you go to, every workshop you attend, we got you. You know, we got you covered. Here yeah. is a way to make sure you are able to, to keep up, to stay um, with the topic, and you're able to really get the most that you can out of that conference. Um, one thing that we did also is um, we applaud you when you leave. So uh, we, and this was totally, this is not even planned. This just happened because our volunteers are that awesome. We're trying to figure out like what is the best um, way to kind of like exit and wrap up the conference, and the volunteers ended up creating this human runway at the end of like where the <laughs> where the exit was. And as people went in, we like applauded them, and it was this great you know awesome way to kind of end you know end this two day event. Awesome. Um, so yeah, so this is going to be the most like loving, supportive conference you've ever been to. I think the talks are great. We put a lot of you know work into creating high quality content, but um, frankly, even if the even if you don't like the talks, the the food and the community and like the vibe that you get when you're there will be well worth it. So my second question mm -hmm. is how can listeners of this show, people who are listening right now, yeah, who don't plan on going to Codeland yes. but want to support your vision of a very helpful, thoughtful, loving community, how can they support Codeland? The biggest thing they can do is buy a pay it forward ticket. So one of the things that we do to make the conference even more affordable and even more accessible is we have an opportunity scholarship and it allows us to provide a very, very discounted ticket. So just 25 bucks. Um, and if the 25 bucks is still, you know, cost prohibitive, we'll like waive that as well. It's just our way of kind of making sure that people are serious about coming. Um, and then we also provide if budget allows for travel stipend. So for like hotel, bus fare, plane ticket, that sort of thing. And so uh, with our opportunity scholarship, it allows people who um, have financial difficulties and cannot afford to come, it gives them an opportunity to do so. And so, and actually scholarships are currently, um, or applications for scholarships are currently open. And so our pay it forward ticket allows folks who um, want to support to basically like buy a ticket for one of our opportunity scholars. Um, and we've had like a good chunk of people already donate. I know you're one of the people who bought a ticket. Thank you so much for that. Um, and it's just a great way for mentors, for senior folks, for people who, um, you know, may not be able to come or for whatever reason, you know, Colan's not a good fit. Um, by the way, Colin's a good fit for everyone. But if you disagree, <laughs> um, <laughs> then uh, here's an opportunity to kind of get back and participate in the uh, in the conference experience. I was really delighted to see how easy it was to to support yeah. the conference yeah, yeah. in that way. Mm -hmm. uh, you made it super easy, and I really do hope that you know if you're listening right now and you want to support a friendly community, like this is the way to do it. Yeah. Uh, just you know, speaking about trust, you know, just. Trust her on. <laughs> I like that takeaway. That Trust me. That's that's the takeaway of this, of this interview. <laughs> Trust her on. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and just invest in something that is already happening, already helping people out, yeah. already doing some really good work in, you know, in in people's lives, whether they be, you know, brand new developers or people in a in a, in a transition. Yep. Thank you so much for your time. Is there anything that you would like to say as we kind of wrap this up? Um, just that the conference is July 22nd in New York City. Um, it's actually interesting. I was looking back on the data for our tickets in the past, and the number one way that people found out about the conference is through a friend or family member. So even if you are not a good fit for the conference or you can't make it, like tell someone. Tell someone about it because they might find some use in attending. Um, so make sure to spread the word. And um, ticket prices are going to go up on June 22nd. So make sure to get yours before those prices go up. And um, I hope to see you all at Codeland. And it's Codeland codelandconf.com so pretty uh pretty easy to remember awesome thank you so much for your time today serena i really appreciate it absolutely thanks for having me 
Thanks for listening to this episode of React Podcast. Show notes and links are available at reactpodcast.com slash 50. A reminder to go to codelandconf.com to buy your tickets or to buy your pay it forward tickets and send someone to this amazingly positive conference. Before I let you go, a little bit of personal information. I will be on vacation for two weeks. And I will not be recording episodes, publishing episodes, or responding to tweets. So next week when you open up your podcatcher and feel that deafening silence, we haven't gone anywhere. I'm just sitting on a beach getting some R&R with my family. Now, if you want to fill that space and you are all caught up on React podcast episodes, I cannot recommend Saran's podcasts enough. Code Newbie, Base CS, and Command Line Heroes. If you like this show, you're going to love hers. She is an incredible host. We will return on June 20th with an amazing conversation with Michelle Westrada, where we talk about MobX and Immer. You will not want to miss it. This episode of React Podcast was edited by Mikhail Delport. It was produced by Mikhail Delport and Sarah Jackson. You can find React Podcast on Spec a network to help designers and developers level up. Visit spec.fm to find other shows that will take you further in your career. Help us out by reviewing this show on iTunes. Your reviews help the show grow and help us ensure great guests and awesome content week to week. To join the discussion, visit reactpodcast.com slash chat or follow us on Twitter at React Podcast. I'm at Chantastic. To stay out of the discussion but get updates, visit reactpodcast.com slash news and sign up for emails. Thanks so much for giving us your attention. 